Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles this morning. Let's go to the book of Mark, Mark chapter number 14, the book of Mark and chapter 14 this morning. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one, perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you. You'll find a copy of God's Word, and we would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us. Mark chapter number 14. So across the top of the page, you're going to look for the word Mark, and then you're going to look for a big number 14, all right? That's called a chapter, and we're going to start here in the first 11 or 12 verses or so. Mark chapter 14, and if you found your place and if you're willing and able, would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word? Mark chapter 14, and we're going to read down to verse number 11. Mark chapter 14, verse 1, that's the small number, to verse 11. Mark 14, 1 to 11. Look with me at the first verse, would you? And after two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. The chief priest and the scribes saw how they might take him by craft and put him to death. So the him there is Jesus. Of course, if you've been with us at any point through our study in the book of Mark, you've realized that the chief priests have been looking for an opportunity to get rid of Jesus at every turn. Now, as The final week of Jesus' life approaches. It's no different. It's just more intense. This is what Mark is pointing out. It's more intent. It's more serious. Their their focus is more. Look at verse 2. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. They say, we want to take Jesus. We want to put him to death, but not today. Not today, because we value our power with people. Verse 3, And being in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment and spikenard, very precious. She broke the box and she poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves. And they said, Why was this waste of ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. Look here, we won't talk about this today, maybe next week, but but make a note of this. There's always somebody who's going to criticize what you decide to do for Jesus. There's always somebody who's going to have something else to say. It's no different in the Bible days than it is in ours. There are plenty of people who are more than happy to spend all kinds of money on anything other than. Want to trick out your living room with all kinds of gadgets? Well, that's good. You want to buy a nice projector for the church? Oh, can we, can we buy a cheaper one than that? This is how they approach their service to the Lord. Now look at Jesus says, verse 6. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? And she hath wrought a good work on me. Anything you do for God is a good work. Anything you do for God is a good work. For when, for ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye may do good, 
you may do them good, but me you have not always. For she hath done what she could. God doesn't expect you to do anything other than what you can do. We'll talk about that next week, I think. But God doesn't expect you to do what I can do. And God doesn't expect me to do what you can do. Do you know why? Because you're not me and I'm not you. God has made you, built you, equipped you, wired you, fashioned you, placed you right where you are, the way he wanted you to be made. Aren't you glad you're not me? I'm glad I'm not you. There's a freedom in that. Do you see? There's a freedom in serving Jesus in that way. You don't have to be anybody other than who God made you to be. That's who you have to be, and that's it. Stop comparing yourself to everybody else. Well, I can't sing as good as her, so I might as well not sing. I can't give as much as them, so I might as well not give. I can't teach as well as they can, so I might as well not teach. No, no, no. That's a trap of the devil. And the Bible says that when we compare ourselves among ourselves, we're fools for doing so. That's not even the sermon. That's just, this is just the scripture reading. Jesus says, she's done what she could. She come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever, wheresoever, this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world. This also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, he went unto the chief priest to betray Jesus unto them. And when they, the, the chief priests, when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give Judas money. And he sought how he might betray him conveniently. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word in our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. This section of your Bible might have a, a title over the top of it simply referred to as Mary anoints Jesus. And while that is certainly accurate, that's what happens in the text, Mary anoints Jesus, you, you will notice that it's not all that happens in the text. In fact, Mary's anointing of Jesus only takes place in one verse. It's just verse 3. The Bible says, And being in Bethany... In the house of Simon the leper, he sat at meat. There came a woman, that's Mary. Mary, having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. She broke the box, she poured it on his head. One verse, that's all it takes. And the rest of the section is really about Jesus' interaction with the disciples, namely with Judas and with the high priest. So I'm not suggesting this morning that we should take the limelight off of Mary. She's well deserving of whatever limelight she gets. In fact, Jesus says, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached, verse 9, throughout the whole world, what she has done will be spoken of for a memorial of her. I'm not suggesting we should move the spotlight off of Mary and put it on to Judas. But what I am suggesting is that we are clearly meant to read this story as a comparison. 
It's a comparison of Mary and Judas. It's a comparison of Mary and her selfless devotion and Judas and his selfishness. And really the main idea from the very first sections of this chapter teaches us that a life spent in selfless devotion to Jesus is not a wasted life. But a life spent in selfishness is a wasted life. You spend your life for God and for good and your life will outlive your life. You live your life for here, for now, for your own wants, for your own desires, for your own ideas, and your life will be one that is wasted. Gone like a vapor is from the wind. Mary serves to remind us of those who realize just how much Jesus is worth Mary serves to remind us of those who realize that true worship and response to God is never wasted. It's never wasted. In fact, both Mary and Judas, they both cast a very long shadow into the history of the world. Jesus says in this text that wherever the gospel is preached, she will be mentioned. But it's also true that wherever the gospel is preached, Judas is brought up just the same, is it not? In, in fact, I, I, I searched on our Breeze membership app this week. I asked John, I said, John, tell me how many Marys we have in the church. You know, according to Breeze membership app, we have 16 Marys in this church. How many of you know someone named Mary? Let me see. Okay, let's see. Some of you didn't raise your hand. That means there's people in the church you don't know. You should be friendly and you should get to know them. How many of you know somebody named Judas? I said to John, so we have 16 Marys. How many Judases? He said, zero, sir, zero. And rightly so. Judas, the traitor. Judas, the betrayer. Judas, that man, that son of perdition, who Jesus will say later in this chapter, it would be better had he not even been born. Judas and Mary. Both of them are remembered, but they are remembered for very different things. I wonder if you and I were honest this morning, which one we are more like? Are we more like Mary, living our life in selfish devotion to Jesus? Living our lives in appropriate response to what Jesus has done? To who Jesus is? To the words Jesus has said? Are we spending our energy in devotion and worship of Him? Are we loving Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are we in pursuit of Christ? Not a perfect pursuit, but a working pursuit of Christ. Listen, friend, Christians are not perfect people, but Christians are forgiven people. And there is a big difference. There are many who say, well, if I cannot be perfect, well, then I'm not even going to try. 
No, no, no. We are to be in pursuit of Christ. We're to remind ourselves of his love. We're to build ourselves on his word. We're to pursue him in all of our endeavors. We're to think of him first throughout our day. Are we spending our lives in selfless devotion of Jesus in pursuit of Christ? Or are we like Mary? Or are we like Judas? Spending our lives in pursuit of our own self. Doing what we want, when we want, however we want, with whoever we want, because we want. You know, that is a story that is told over and over and over in the Bible. You want to see that story in its, its most grotesque form? Read the book of Judges. The book of Judges is not a record of pagan people doing pagan things. The book of Judges is a record of God's chosen people. The people who God moved among and they pursued their own desires. They chose to do what they want, when they want, however they want, simply because they wanted. They, but they did what Judges says is what was right in their own eyes. Morality was up for grabs. Sexuality was up for grabs. Identity up for grabs. The use of my body, the use of my mind, the use of my entertainments, the use of my free time, the use of my resources. I just can use them in full and selfish ways. I just use them to please me. This is, in fact, what Judas is doing. You will totally waste your life if you spend your life on yourself. But you will not waste your life. You cannot waste your life if you spend your life in selfless devotion to Jesus Christ. Let's look at the text and notice verse 1. After two days, the feast of the Passover, the unleavened bread... And the chief priests and the scribes saw how they might take him, take Jesus by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. You notice down, verse number 10, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him. And verse 11, they promised to give him money. So Ju Judas and the religious leaders both seem intent on killing Jesus. Why? Because they're simply acting out of selfishness. Judas, the thought that he wanted more money and that more money would bring him more happiness. The Jewish leaders wanting more power, thinking that more power would bring them more happiness. And both of them wasted their lives. And both of them missed opportunities. And both of them refused to accept who Jesus was. Sometimes we have this idea that, that Judas was this sinister presence in the New Testament. That he was this shady disciple with like shifty eyes. And he was this evil villain the long, dark robe, take me to your leader, right? This is not the case, in fact. 
When Jesus says here in a few verses that there will be one at this supper who will betray me, did you know none of the disciples looked at Judas and went, it's that guy. <laughs> it's definitely going to be that guy. Just look at him. No one did that. In fact, it was the exact opposite with Judas. Judas was trusted. Judas was well-beloved. You know this just by implication. Judas is the treasurer of the disciples. You don't make shady people your accountant, right? You don't give dishonest, shady individuals access to your money. And yet that's what they did with Judas. They trusted him. No one would have suspected him. And in fact, no one did. And here we have this contrast between Judas and these Jewish leaders and Mary. Judas and his selfishness. That sometimes even though the external may look the part, the heart is far from being right with God. And what we're seeing here at the beginning of this text is we're seeing there is a clear division. And so it is with Jesus it doesn't need to be said because plenty has already been said in this study, but I will just remind you, Jesus Christ divides everything. He divides the calendar of history. Everything before Jesus, B.C. Everything after Jesus, A.D. He divides eternities. He divides humanity. The Bible says, quoting Jesus, you are either for me or you are against me. He says he does not come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. There is no one else like Jesus in the history of the world who, who prompts such antithetical extremes. You can love or you can hate. You can be devoted or you can reject. You can worship or you can blaspheme. You can have faith or you can have unbelief. You are either a believer or an unbeliever. But hear me, friend, there is no middle ground. Jesus is either who he claimed to be, the very Son of God in the flesh, God himself, sinless, who died on the cross for the sins of all of the world and then rose three days from the dead, or he is a liar. He is not both. He cannot be both. And Judas refuses to see Jesus for who he is. I think you have these in your outline, but notice this. Judas thought of Jesus as useful. Mary thought of Jesus as beautiful. How do you see Jesus? Something that is useful is simply a helpful tool in order that you might gain something else. Judas sees Jesus as useful. This is the way in which many people see God today. They see God as useful, a, a way to get to heaven, a way to have good health, a way to build their career. But they don't see God as beautiful in and of himself. You, you think of things that are useful. A, a, a tire iron is useful. I keep it in my car in case I get a flat tire for only one reason, what it can do for me if I get a flat tire. And you know what? If the tire iron breaks, I throw it away. 
I don't hold the tire iron and go, what a beautiful tire iron. It's been with me for 12 years. Just throw it away and I get a new one. Why? Because it's a useful tool, that's all. But you know, I, I don't see my wife or kids as useful. I, I don't see them as useful, I see them as beautiful. I don't love them because what they can do for me. I don't love them because of what they can bring into my life. I don't love them because they offer me particular things. No, no, no. I see them as beautiful. I love them for who they are. And this is the contrast between Judas and Mary. Mary sees Judas, Mary sees Jesus as beautiful. Judas sees Jesus as useful. It's just a way for him to gain more money. It's a way for him to gain more influence. It's a way for him to get more power. It's a way for him to build connections. But he's not pursuing Jesus for who Jesus is. How do you find Jesus this morning? Do you find him simply as useful? Or do you find him as beautiful? In fact, Judas' entire betrayal here is presented in this way. His entire betrayal is presented as how do you see Jesus and what will your estimation of Jesus be? You see it in the contrast between these two. Notice, notice the woman here. Notice Mary. The Bible says in verse 3, a box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. Later, in other interpretations of this same passage, it teaches us that this is about a year's worth of salary. She takes about a year's worth of salary and she pours it out on Jesus. Notice the contrast with Judas. Judas, verse number 11, promised to get money. I wonder what your value of Jesus is. What's your price? What is the price that would get you to stop following Jesus? Maybe you only follow Jesus because it's convenient to follow him. What's your price? If you got made fun of at the office, that would, that would be enough to get you to stop following Jesus? If someone in your neighborhood found out you were a Jesus follower, that'd be enough for you to turn down your evangelistic attempts? What's the price? What is your price? And Judas thought of Jesus as useful. Mary thought of Jesus as beautiful. But that's not it. Notice second, Judas thought Jesus was going to reward the righteous. Mary knew that Jesus made the unclean clean. Judas' entire idea was built on the Old Testament fulfillment of a Messiah coming who would establish a kingdom. Judas and the other disciples thought that this would be an earthly kingdom, that it would be a kingdom here and now. It would be a kingdom of military might, of political might. But Jesus comes and Jesus says, no, 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 your greatest need is not a military need. Your greatest need is not political. Your greatest need is not educational. Your greatest need is not financial. Your greatest need is spiritual. Why are they seeking to put Jesus to death? You remember just a few chapters earlier, they wanted to take Jesus by force and they wanted to make him a king. Why are they now wanting to take Jesus and put him to death? 
It's because Jesus did not meet their own expectation. In their mind, they were righteous. In their mind, they were holy. In their mind, they were chosen. They were full of self-righteousness. And Jesus comes along the way and he says, no, 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 no. It is not that you are righteous from the outside. It's that you are unrighteous on the inside. It's the heart of the man that defiles the man. Where do you think all of the lying and the blaspheme and the hatred and the greed and the lust, where do you think it comes from? It comes from your own heart. All we like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We've all pursued our own and our own ideas of righteousness, which is why God sent Jesus into this world. God sent Jesus into the world not to make healthy people whole. God sent Jesus into this world to make sick people whole. The healthy, they don't need a physician. Oh, but the sick, they're in need of a physician. And can I tell you this, my friend? We're all sick with sin. We're all sick with sin. The Bible says that we have all sinned. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, we've all sinned. Romans chapter 5, whereas by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have, what? Sinned. We've all sinned. Which is why God sent Jesus into this world. Because our sin, our sin separates us from God. Our sin removes us from God. And our sin has separated us from God in this life, even right now. That God who is holy, who is righteous, who is, who is pure, who is clean, he cannot have fellowship with unrighteousness. He cannot have fellowship with sin. Holiness and sin, they do not mix. And so God is separated from us in this life because of our sin. And the Bible teaches us that if we die in our sin, then we will be separated from God for all of eternity in a place that the Bible calls hell removed from the presence of God for all of eternity as a result of our sin and so there's a hundred religions in the world that say here's how you get rid of your sin do good and feed the hungry and help the poor and be moral and be civil and talk kind to your neighbor and let people in front of you in traffic do all of these things and you'll somehow have enough good works in the end to outdo your bad works and Christianity, and Christianity alone says, no, 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 it is not the good work that you do. It's the good work that Jesus has done for you. No, our righteousness, it's as filthy rags. Heaven is reserved for us through Jesus Christ who purchased a righteousness for us that we could not purchase on our own. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to his mercies that he saved us by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. You see, friend, the way you are made right with God is not through religion. The way you are made right with God is through faith in the Son of God, through faith in Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done for you. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? I'm not asking you this morning if you're religious. 
I'm asking you, has there been a moment in your life where you have turned away from your sin, where you have turned away from your self-righteousness, and you have realized what your sin costs, where you've realized where your sin has sentenced you to go, and you have realized that there is no hope for you apart from Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Judas thought Jesus was going to reward the righteous. Mary knew he made the unclean clean. There's a similar situation recorded in the other Gospels where Jesus explains about the woman who is pouring ointment out on his feet. And Jesus explains about her the reason that she loves me so much is she realizes I have forgiven her so much. Jesus is not saying in that moment that the woman is actually forgiven more. What Jesus is saying is the woman realizes just how much she's been forgiven. You see, oftentimes the reason why we are more like Judas than we are like Mary is we do not realize just how much we've been forgiven. We don't realize the cost of forgiveness. We don't realize how desperate our situation was apart from Christ. Judas thought of Jesus as useful. Mary thought of Jesus as beautiful. Judas thought of Jesus as rewarding the righteous. Mary knew that he'd make the unclean clean. Judas thought, or rather Judas was close to the truth, but Mary received the truth. You think of it. Judas traveled for three and a half years with Jesus in his ministry. Heard every sermon he preached. Saw every miracle he performed. Judas himself even performed and preached. It's possible, friend, for you to hear the truth. It's possible for you to be around the truth. but not actually receive the truth. See, it's not, it's not enough that your dad or your mom or your brother or your sister, that they believe in Jesus. It's about you. We've said this over and over again the last six years here at First Baptist. It's, God has no grandchildren. You're either his child or you are not. You do not get into heaven because you had religious parents. You get into heaven because you have chosen to put your faith in Jesus to response to what Jesus has done for you. So I'm not asking you if your parents were religious. I'm not asking you if your spouse is religious. I'm not asking you if your children are religious. I'm asking you, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you received the truth? Not if you've heard it, not if you've grown up around it, not if you're familiar with it, but have you received it? You see, this is what Mary has done. 
Mary received the truth. Judas, Judas was close. But almost is not enough. And so in the text of Scripture, Mary is given this incredible praise from Jesus. Notice how Jesus responds to her. She's wrought a good work. Wouldn't you love to hear that from Jesus? That what you have done in response to who he is is a good work? Jesus says she's, she's done what she's, she could. Jesus says she's, she's seen what no one else will see. Notice she's come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. You see that? Jesus is talking about approaching death. And in fact, he is. He's just a few days away from it at this point in Mark chapter 14. And Jesus is saying it over and over and over again. And nobody is listening, but Mary is. The disciples don't get it, but Mary gets it. The disciples miss it, but Mary receives it. You see, friend, with Jesus, there is this incredible division that is seen. I wonder for you, I wonder for me, do you treat Jesus more like Judas or do you treat Jesus more like Mary? I wonder if in my heart of hearts, if I'm more selfless because I see him for who he is or if I'm more selfish. What is it for you? But it's not just the division. Notice this, there's a, there's a second thought here from this text and that is there is a dependability of the scriptures. There's a dependability of the scriptures. You notice this phrase, look, look at the beginning of this. Look at verse one. And after two days, the feast of the Passover, the unleavened bread, the chief priests and the scribes saw how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar. You see, friend, everything that the Bible says will happen, happened. Everything that the Bible says will come to pass, it will come to pass. You can trust the scriptures. We're, we're taught this over and over and over again. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's how the Bible is recorded. You can either choose to accept the scripture or you choose to reject it. David kills Goliath. A donkey speaks to Balaam. The axe head floats. The Red Sea departed. The Jordan River stood still. The deaf ears, they heard. The blind eyes, they saw. Everything that God's word said did happen, listen, did in fact happen. And everything that God's word says will happen, will in fact happen. Passages like Mark chapter 14 are meant to build our confidence in the scriptures. They're meant to increase our confidence in the word of God, that God's word is dependable, that you can count on the word of God. Listen, friend, there are not very many people in this world who are good for their word. But can I tell you this? God is good for his word. There are not very many people that you can count on to do what they said they would do, but you can count on God to do what he said he would do. This is what we are seeing here. When it comes to the Bible, we all have a choice to make. You can either take the Bible on your own terms, on your own way, with your own ideas, 
or you can take the Bible on its terms, in its way. Many, many people choose to relate to the Bible like, like a map that offers a route. Have you ever put in a destination on your, on your GPS? And it says, here's the fastest route. And then it gives you this little gray line that says, similar ETA, right? Similar ETA. And there are many people who treat the Bible in the same way. It's a way to God. No, 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 no. The Bible presents itself very clearly. The way to God. Not a option. The only option. How are you choosing to count on God's word? How are you choosing to do, see the word of God? Jesus has said this over and over. The day is coming. The day is coming. The day is coming. The day is coming. Well, guess what? By the time you get to Mark 15, Mark 16, the day is here. God is good for his word. Mary chooses to hear the word of God. Mary chooses to believe the word of God. She recognizes, although it's true, Mary can't possibly know everything that Jesus' death would, would, would entail. Mary chooses to embrace what Jesus has said. How about you? Are you choosing to accept what the word of God says? How do you choose to relate to the Bible? How do you choose to relate to the Bible as it relates to the origins of this world? Do you choose to believe God's word as literally true? Do you choose to believe the Bible as it relates, as it, as it, uh, relates to the origins of humanity? That God made the first two human beings that were ever created. He placed them on this earth as complete, full-grown humans. That they did not simply evolve slowly over time. But that God made them complete in his own image. Male and female, he made them. Adam and Eve is who they were. You choose to believe the Bible or not? The Bible is either true or it is false, but it cannot be both. You choose to believe the Bible as it relates to the purpose of humanity. God says the purpose of humanity, the reason why you were put on this earth was to glorify God, that we exist to do good to others so that others would see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Do you choose to believe the Bible as it relates to the purpose of marriage and your family? The Bible says that marriage serves as a picture of our relationship with God. Marriage is not a cultural institution. Marriage is a biblical institution. Marriage doesn't belong to the state. Marriage belongs to God. It's His. He made it, he ordained it, he created it. And the Bible says it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of God's love for us. How that Jesus pursued us. How that Jesus so loved us that he died for the church, his bride, his wife, his one and only. That this is what marriage is according to the Bible. One man, one woman for one lifetime. Do you, do you see it in this way? Or is marriage optional? When you get in trouble in your marriage, you get out of it. 
claiming, well, no one's perfect. It, was, it wasn't love. I had someone ask me a question recently. They said, what about people who get married and then decide that they didn't have the true feelings of love? I said, well, they don't have a biblical understanding of love because love, according to the Bible, is not a feeling. Love, according to the Bible, is a choice. You choose to love somebody. You choose to set your love on this person. Yeah, but they got problems. They got stinky feet and they don't put away their clothes and they, they slurp their soup when they eat it. No, no, no. You choose to love them. You choose it. You're settling for a cheaper understanding of love than what God presents to us. You don't think that Jesus knows that you have stinky feet, but Jesus loved you? Jesus loved you. Jesus set his love on you. That's what the Bible says. Jesus set his love on you, which is this. Jesus knows everything there is to know about you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your fears. He knows your insecurities. He knows all of it. He knows your temptations. He knows your struggles. He knows your victories. He knows your wins. He knows those areas where you're super confident. He knows those areas where you're very backward. Jesus knows everything about you, and he still loves you. He loves you in spite of it. Well, either marriage is a picture of the gospel in that Jesus has chosen to set his love on us. You never, you never marry the right person. You become the right person. You become the right person. This is the idea that is presented to us in the scriptures about marriage. Now, either you believe that to be true from the Bible or you do not believe that to be true from the Bible. Do you believe the Bible as it relates to what the great problem in the world is, the great need? Do you believe the Bible to be true as it relates to the future? Do you believe the Bible to be true as it relates to the most pressing issues in our culture today? Transgenderism, abortion, climate change, homosexuality, gay marriage, all of these things. Do you believe the Bible to be true or not? You see, the difference between a Judas and a Mary, Judas, he heard the word, he rejected the word. Mary, she heard the word. And while there were parts of it that she perhaps did not fully understand, she accepted the word of God to be true. Do you believe the Bible? To be true as it relates to how you use your body, how you use your money, how you use your free time? I don't know about you, friend, but I have made my choice. I believe the Bible is true. I've decided to build my life on it. It's proven to be pure, infallible, inerrant, sufficient. I have chosen not to take the Bible on my own terms, but I have chosen to take the Bible on its terms, every word of it. Whether that is culturally acceptable or not, I have chosen to believe the word of God. What about you? What about you? There's a dependability of the scripture. Last one, I gotta get you out of here. Notice this. 
There's the deity of the Savior. There's the division that's seen. There's the dependability of the Scripture. There's the deity of the Savior. Everything that happens in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is in full control of. You're going to see this, I think, in two weeks from now. We'll, we'll look more specifically at the details of this Last Supper. But everything around the Supper, you can read it. Fast forward it this week. Read it for your homework. Read verse 14 through verse 25 or so. And you'll see Jesus telling the disciples, go into town, the supper is prepared, find this person, go to this room. It's exactly how it lays out. You know what that tells us? While Jesus is headed to the darkest day where he will lay his own life down, Jesus is in full control. There's never one moment of one day of one minute where Jesus is not in absolute control over everything that's happening. And can I tell you this for your own life? Jesus is in full control. He's in control of it all. You see, your, your, your situation may have brought, may have been a surprise to you, but it wasn't a surprise to Jesus. It may have shocked you, but it didn't shock him. And one of the reasons why we have such a difficult time responding in faith to him is because we like to think that we're in control. And so when we go through a season that's difficult, that's hard, that's frustrating, that's opposite of what we would have chosen for ourselves. You know why we get so frustrated? You know why we get so bent? You know why we get so upset? Because it reminds us we're not in control anyway. In fact, we've never been in control. We just thought we were in control. Now God is constantly doing this in my own life. I love to be in control. I want to be the one calling the shot. I'm a terrible passenger seat driver. You know what I mean? How many of you are terrible passenger seat drivers, right? I sit over there. I was riding with my son into church today. He was driving me. I said, whoa, whoa, watch that. Oh, go slow down. Uh, hey, hey, stop. You're, you're, you're too close. Go, go park over there. Don't park over here. I'm a terrible passenger. Because <laughs> I like to be in control. But when we experience difficulty, when we get a diagnosis we don't like, we have problems in our marriage, we see something happening in our culture, we watch the way things are playing out in our society, in our world, you know what it reminds us? It reminds us we were never in control to begin with. And while you and I may not be in control, God is. God is. You say, well, okay, pastor, if God's in control and I'm not in control, then what am I supposed to do? Here's what you're supposed to do. Trust him. Trust him. He's God and he loves you. And he is working in you his own good purpose. Will you trust him?
This is what Mary does. She takes her box. It represents financial security for her future. She picks it up. A year's worth of salary, according to the last census that was done for Long Beach, 2020 census, the average annual income for the individual in Long Beach is $31,000. So let's just use Long Beach numbers. Here's a box of perfume that cost $31,000. That's not your average Old Spice, you know what I mean? She takes this, an entire years of salary, and she breaks it. You know what she's saying? I trust you. I trust you. I trust you with my future. I trust you with my life. I trust you for tomorrow. What about you? You trust God? You trust God with your life? You trust God with your future? Do you trust God with your marriage? Do you trust God with your children? Do you trust God with your career? Do you trust God?